0: Acts 17, so a number of years ago, probably 20, not quite, I was leading three different Bible studies a week, and I did, well, I wasn't leading the high school, I do high school every once in a while, to help out in high school, and I was leading a men's Bible study, and then we would go to Vintage Suites, which was the name of a retirement home that's over by Baker Park. And uh, the way I got people to go to the Vintage Suites Bible study was to bring my daughter, Carissa, who was three months old at the time, just bring her in. And then it would just like, old people, it was like the Pied Piper. They would just follow, where are you taking the baby? Follow me, come here, here she is, here she is. And I'd get them in there, I'd send them out, okay, now, grab a Bible. They're like, what? We want the baby. So I was doing those three things, and here's what I found. I found that um, the way you would present Whatever teaching it was, was not the same. What I did with the high schoolers, or what I did with the men's group, or what I did with vintage suites, it might be the same idea or theology, but the way it was communicated was very different. I didn't walk into vintage suites saying, What's up, G paw? <laughs> word to the brother. No, right? You, you contextualize to your audience. Okay, so here's what we've seen in Acts so far. It's mainly been, the context is the culture of Jews. There's been a little bit of some Roman stuff happening in there, some pagan stuff in there, but mainly it's to monotheistic, God-believing individuals. And so what Paul has done and what Peter did was real simple. The God you are worshiping has a name and it's Jesus. And that's what he would do. He would zero in, to that with monotheistic, believing people. But in this chapter, for the first time, Paul is gonna take the gospel to the Greek philosophers. They are people that believe in lots of gods, education, ideas, and how he does it is very, very different. So we'll actually get both different ways in this one chapter, and it's really brilliant. So let's jump in, verse one. Acts 17, and when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, Apollonia. yeah, whatever it is, it's Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in as was his custom. But the Jews were jealous and taking some wicked men of the rabble. It's the folks you see when you're driving down 6th Street at 5 a.m. and all the other, or 5 p.m. in all the other cars. You're like, get out of my way, you rabble. They formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason. Poor Jason. He's like, what? Why me? (laughs) I'm not these guys seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, these men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. And Jason was receiving them. And they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. And people, the people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had taken money, like a bond, as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. I you notice, first of all, and this should be obvious by this point, Paul has a plan. Verse one, I'm going to the synagogue. Verse 10, he goes to a new city called Berea. The first thing he does is goes to a Jewish synagogue. This is his pattern, it is his plan, it's his goal. Every time he comes to a new city, I know what I'm going to do. The very first thing I'm going to do is I have a plan to go present the gospel first to Jewish people. Now, why does he do that? Here's what I think. Paul's missionary journeys are super long. He'll be in Corinth for a year and a half. So he goes for years and years and years and years. And what we'll notice about Paul is very often, it does not go well for him. And there's a tendency to get weary when you do the same thing for a long, long time and it doesn't work out that well. So you almost have to have a plan and that will keep you. So maybe here's an example of this. About two years ago, almost exactly a little bit later, uh, the last time we hiked the Pacific Crest Trail, Uh, It was Saturday morning. We had done a 15 mile on Thursday. We'd done a 15 mile on Friday. And Saturday morning, we get up and we have 18 miles left to complete that stretch. So I got up and Elijah, my son who's eight years old at that time, I said, buddy, it was 6.30 in the morning. That's when we were heading out. I said, okay, buddy, we need to figure out a plan, a goal. And I came with this saying right then and there. I said, here's what we need to do. We want to set a goal when we're strong so that when we get weak, it will carry us on. He's like, okay. So I said, we're strong right now at 6.30, we just ate. We're feeling good, we're frisky, we're all, yeah. So how long do we wanna go for? When do we wanna quit this morning? When do we wanna take our first break? He's like, hmm, he thought about it. He goes, okay, 6.30, 7.30, 8.30. Let's go till 9.30, three hours. I said, awesome. Because in three hours, you can do nine miles. So that would mean we'd have half the trip done. I said, awesome, let's go. So we start hiking. We're going along, going along. 7.30 rolls around. Elijah runs up behind me. He's eight years old. And he's carrying, I don't know, a pack 250 pounds, something like that. (laughs) He comes running behind me. He's like, dad, dad, you know, how about we take a little break right here? I said, man, I would love to take a break right here. That would be awesome. But remember, remember at 6.30 what we did? Remember what we said? We said, let's set a goal when we're strong so that at 7.30 when we get weak, it'll carry us on. He goes, oh yeah, yeah. So what do you think? Should we take a break or not? No, let's not. So we keep walking. At eight o'clock, comes running with me. Dad, okay, dad, dad. How about we hike till nine o'clock and not 9.30? (laughs) I said, okay, okay. I, I want to stop at nine, trust me. I want to, but remember we made a goal that we would hike till 9.30 when we were strong. And now that we're getting weak and we're getting tired and there's a hill, that that we gotta go back to our goal, right? He's like, yeah, okay, okay. So we hiked from 6.30 till nine thirty, nine miles before most kids on Saturday have eaten breakfast. Why? Because we had this goal, this plan, and the plan carried us through the weak times in life. And what you see is that's what Paul does. He knows I've got every city I go into, I'm gonna have this plan. Doesn't matter what happened in the last city. Doesn't matter if it was awesome or disappointing. I still have the same plan. I'll go in as my custom is, and I'll go to the Jews first, and then we'll see what happens from there. I'm going to have a plan. There's such power in that. There's a book called The Power of the Habit, which essentially says the same thing. And they did this study on uh, Starbucks, where all they did, was, had them just, they just took Starbucks employees, And in the morning, they had them write a to-do list. Like productivity went through the roof just by that one simple thing. In the morning, make a plan for yourself. So that when you start kind of spacing off or being like, what should I do? You just look back at, oh, this is the next thing on my list. The power of that. So that's what Paul does. He knows that's what I have to do. I think too often, there can be a segment of Christianity where we we begin to think that I don't need to plan. I don't need to do anything. I'm just gonna wait for God to like direct or show me what to do. And then people will often wait for some kind of crazy sign, like God writes in the sky something. I'm just waiting for that. Well, you'll wait probably till you're dead before you get that. Instead, make a plan. And what I've seen is when I plan well, and when I'm flexible in that plan, man, great things happen. God redirects me. He gets me where I'm supposed to go. It's the old saying, God can't steer a parked car. Just make a plan, I'm gonna head out. That's what Paul does over and over and over again. And he's also flexible in that plan. If you look at verse three, this is the first time you see Paul doing this. He explained and proved that it was necessary for Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead. It's the first time he's explained why the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus was necessary. You ever get that question from somebody? If God's so loving and he can forgive people, why did Jesus have to die the way he did? You ever get that question? I have, many times. The Jews would be asking it from a different perspective. Place than Americans would ask it. The Jews would be looking for a conquering king. So they're like, we expected Jesus to come, kick all the Romans' tails and set up a new Davidic kingdom where it stretches from sea to shining sea and we've got peace everywhere. What are you talking about? Why, why does Jesus come the way he did? So they would have asked it from that perspective. We ask it from the love perspective in America today. It'd be so loving. Well, if you remember, I don't know how many years ago now, we went through Matthew. In the book of Matthew, when we got to tw- chapter 27, which is the death, burial, resurrection of Jesus, chapter 28, I did two messages on Sunday where I had 11 reasons why Jesus had to die. I didn't get through all of them, so Wednesday I picked up a few of them. Do you remember that? No. Good, I'll give you the top few. Why did Jesus have to die? Number one, there's this word and it goes way back to the Torah, the first five books of the Bible. And I I don't want to get complicated on it, but it's called propitiation. And there's a massive debate in theology. What does propitiation actually mean? And I am firmly convinced it means this, no more wrath. So propitiation means just, if you look at the biblical theology of it, it means no more wrath. So you got to ask the question then, if it means no more wrath, why was God mad at us? Why was God angry? Why did there need to be no more wrath? Here's why. God is angry at creation wreckers. That's what he's angry at. Have you ever created something that you loved that you poured yourself into, that you said, oh, it's so good, it's so good, it's good and good, and then had somebody come and destroy it? How does that make you feel? It happened to me. Before the Volkswagen bus I have now, I had a 1965. Bought it from a guy in Gold Hill, and it had this painting on the front of it. And on one side, it said, no war. And then it was mirrored to the other side. So the other side said like, war on. So it was just, it was, he had, he had picked up too many things in the woods and eaten them before he painted it. So it was that kind of thing on the front of it. So I, I stripped it down to nothing. I, I did all the body work on it. I rebuilt the motor. I spent hours on that thing. It was my Magna Opus. And I started driving it. And I loved it. And then one Friday, it was actually Good Friday, I'm driving to work. I'm just putting along, yeah, loving life. I'm coming down from Rogue River Highway onto the two-lane part that then goes, there's two lanes on two sides, you go to 7th Street. So I'm coming into that, and there's this guy in this Volvo, and he's doing like 20 miles per hour. I'm doing 35, the max speed of my Volkswagen bus. So I'm maxed out. I'm doing 35. I'm cruising along. And then at the last minute, he decides he's going to turn into that little glass shop, the the Novus windshield, Novus windshield now. So he just turns, sideswipes me, just sends me like flying, like a Ball off a baseball bat. So just, bing, I'm gone. Uh, bent my whole, like, like my Volkswagen was actually a horseshoe now. Tore up from the front all the way to the back, ripped the back bumper off. And so I'm just now in the grass up there, like, oh. And I'm thinking, you know, I'm a Christian. I wanna respond well here. Because he gets out of his car, he's coming over to me. And I'm just sitting there. So it's got these little slider windows. I open it, I'm like, okay. I'm gonna just say, hey, we all make mistakes. No problem, I get it. And he comes over and he goes, Hey kid, you're driving pretty fast, weren't you? I was like, what? I'm not going Christian. I'm going caveman. All right. I'm opening this door and we're going caveman. The only problem was the door was like, it wouldn't open. So I'm like, ah, what you, is God just saying, nah, I don't think so. To this day, I hate Volkswagens. I mean, I hate Volvos. They're heavy missiles of destruction. That's how God feels. He creates a really good space, puts Adam and Eve as his representatives, his image bearers into this really good space. And what do they do? They destroy it. And they keep destroying it. And Cain kills Abel. And they keep destroying it with gossip and selfishness. And they keep destroying it with the way that people treat each other unkindly, not as image bearers, but as someone to use and abuse and get what you want from them taking from women what is not rightfully them, you know, in Genesis six, over and over. They're just creation destroyers. And so that's the wrath stored up. And so Jesus propitiates us. And Romans 5, one says that because of that, we now have peace with God. That whatever part of the creation wrecking we've done, that's gone now. And we have this peace with God. So it's propitiation. The other big one is redemption. And redemption, there are two ways to interpret the Bible, two big broad ways. One way is when you look at the New Testament, you go to first century culture and you say, what did the culture think about a word like redemption in the first century? And then you use culture to tell you what redemption would do. So redemption to a first century person would be go to the slave market, see somebody up for sale, purchase them from the slave market, and then take them. So there are some people that believe that's what redemption is. The only problem with that is when you push it, who then does God pay to redeem you and me? Who are we enslaved to? Well, Satan. So God pays Satan to get us? It doesn't seem right. So I believe the right way to actually interpret the New Testament is through scripture. That you say, okay, where else in the Bible... And this is biblical theology. Where else in the Bible do you see stories of redemption? Where in the Bible do you see the big story of redemption? People that were enslaved to a power and they cry out and they get saved from that power. Where do you see a good story like that? Egypt, the Exodus, that the children of Israel are under the thumb of this really bad dude who's killing their babies, who's destroying God's good creation. And God does not pay Pharaoh, does he? He gives him opportunity to repent and then he punches him in the mouth. You will let my people go. And that's really what you see, I think, the proper way of redemption. Jesus comes and destroys dark powers and frees us from the grip of Satan and that kingdom of darkness. Read Colossians 1 and 2. It makes that clear. This is what Jesus did. So you've got propitiation, you've got redemption, you've got expiation. That word simply means... um, to be made clean, right? So, so expiation is whatever we, we, we feel like, oh, I'm, I'm dirty, you're made clean so that you have no shame anymore. It's Isaiah 61, that very messianic thing that starts out with the spirit of the Lord is upon me, has anointed me to preach the good news, to do these things, and then it goes on to say, and there's gonna be no shame for you. That's expiation. You and I, as believers in Jesus, have no shame. We're righteous, Jesus, his death was necessary, 2 Corinthians 5.21, because it says this, he who knew no sin became sin that we might become the righteousness of God. That he took what we deserve and we get what he earned. That's the beauty of his righteousness. Justification. Justification, um, I think it is actually a family term That justification means you are now brought back into the family that we belong to. There's the family of Adam and there's the family of Jesus, Romans chapter five. And justification means you come out of the family of Adam that you were born into and you're now brought into the family of Jesus. And now you come in as a huyos, an adult mature son, having all the access to what Jesus has in his home, in his house, brilliant. Um, And then the last one that I'll mention, Is Christus Victor? Why did Jesus do this to triumph over dark powers? So back in early December, this crew that does this podcast uh, asked me to talk to them about Christmas, and so they were asking me questions, and they they were probably not expecting this answer. They said, "What do you think the what do you think the big big thing is about the Christmas story?" And I said, "Oh, it's totally war." And they're like, "What?" I said, "It's totally war." Read Matthew. What's the first events? He's born and then what happens? There's attack, right? Herod comes after him, kills babies. It's brutal. Why do the the angels come and they say, hey, we're declaring peace. Why do you need peace? Because there's a war. I said, it's totally war. They're like, what do you mean by that? So I didn't unpack that for them. And that is the Christus victor. It's Martin Luther's big thing. He said, that is the reason Jesus came to give us victory over these dark powers that will enslave us and suck us back into garbage. Jesus triumphed over them, Colossians chapter 2, verse 15. Brilliant. So I can go on and on and on. Why is it necessary? I think Paul was just laying this out to the Jewish audience now. He just starts saying, this is why, this is why, this is why. So it's this new kind of twist. And I love that, and here's why. Paul's brilliant, but he keeps making his craft better and better, and better, and better, and better. We've seen that. He keeps getting, honing it down, sharpening, getting better, and better. I love that. I think that we all should. And here's the results. Look at what they say, verse six. These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. How cool is that? How cool is that? if we really believe the gospel, it will turn your world upside down, right? The gospel says, the first shall be last and the last shall be first. Do you actually live that way? Would you ever be able to get out of a four-way stop if you did, (laughs) right? No, you, no, no, you, no. Would you ever check out from a, Shopping, no, you go in front of me. No, you've got less than me. Go. No, you've got more than me. Go in front of me, right? It's the upside down kingdom. Turn the other cheek. If somebody slaps you, turn the other cheek. Who could actually walk that out? Somebody just came up to you and just cold cocked you. Would you be like, okay, this side now. I wanna match. I don't wanna look that way. I want two black eyes, not one. Anybody live like that? Hard. Don't be overcome of evil, but overcome evil with good, right? When someone really does something bad to you, the gospel says you find something equally good, mirror, if it's super bad, it's gotta be super good, that you do back to them. Does anybody do that? That's the upside down kingdom. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. That's not my job. You gotta say, I don't do any of that. I don't get vengeance. I don't do any of that. Maybe live like that? Man, that's, that's super hard. How about love your enemy? Right? Matthew chapter 5, 44. Hey, the Gentiles love their friends, big whoop. In my kingdom, I want you guys to love your enemy. Agape, your enemy, the guy that's out to get you, I want you to love him. That's insane to me. If Christians actually lived the upside down kingdom, I think we'd see acts all over again. But for most of us, I'll put myself, I'll put my name in that hat. We'd say, How in the world do you do that? There has to be a massive move of Jesus in my heart to be able to actually live out that upside down kingdom and it sounds super good, how do they respond to this? They're angry. No, listen, you can do everything right, which Paul did here. You can do everything right, and the response to you is evil, hatred, totally. Because our battle is not against flesh and blood. There's always something underneath it that's empowering it and whispering and causing discord. You gotta know that. And when that happens, What does Paul do? He moves on. You shake up the dust and you move on, verse 10. The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. When they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. His plan. Now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Many of them therefore believed with not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men. But when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was proclaimed by Paul at Berea, they came there too, agitating and stirring up the crowds. Then the brothers immediately sent Paul off on his way to the sea But Silas and Timothy remained there. Those who conducted Paul brought him as far as Athens. And after receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, they departed. Same plan. It was tough there. Okay, I go to Berea, same plan. I go to the synagogue, I carry it out. And almost the same exact thing happens again in Berea. But Luke adds a little commentary in here. And he says this, hey, these guys were more noble. They did three things that were noble. They received what Paul said. They researched it in the scriptures and they responded to what they learned. I love that. I think this is the right way to do Bible study. When someone has a different idea about scripture, I wanna listen to them. Tell me, why you, tell me why you think that way. I want to receive what you're saying, okay? And then number two, okay, 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 okay. I wanna then look at scripture and think, does that match up with what scripture says? So a lot of times, man, it's open Bible for me. I love seminary for this. We'd have these lunch times and after, after class times, just Bible's open. I love open Bibles. I think that is the only way to listen to somebody teach, open Bible. I love to see that. That a guy a while back come up to me like, hey, um, that reference you made, it wasn't 1 Timothy chapter four, it was 2 Timothy chapter four. I said, oh, I know, I was just testing you. <laughs> <laughs> now I was like, hey, man, thank you. I appreciate that. It's open Bible. It's, hey, is that really what that says right there? That's the only way. And then... And then they changed their minds. They responded. Do you know how hard it is to change your mind about something you believe? There are these incredible studies that Stanford did in the 1970s. You can Google them. It's just amazing. Like the stubbornness of what we believe, changing that is a miracle. It is so hard, right? They did more recent ones where they would just have somebody take a test. And they would divide the group into two groups. One group, they'd be like, you aced this test. You're brilliant. The other group, you flunked it. Too bad. Then they would wait like a space of five minutes and come back and be like, actually, we made up your results. You guys didn't ace it and you guys didn't flunk it. The test was a farce. We didn't even grade them. We didn't even correct them. It's totally meaningless. And they would hammer it into them. It totally meaningless. Then they'd wait like 10 minutes and be like, so on the subject that we talked about, To the crew that aced it, how knowledgeable do you think you are on that? The aced it group would be like, oh, I know a lot about that. The group that failed it would be like, oh, I don't know anything about that. Even though they've been told the test meant nothing, but they still carried with them the belief that they failed at that. And that's just, there's tons of these little things that once you believe something, oh, it's so hard to change your mind, especially with kids. Kids are wet cement. What you impress into their heart hardens and becomes something that is impossible very often for them to change. Like I was told as a little kid, I've used this before, that oranges were actually green. They had to be dyed orange. I still believe it to this day. We don't have orange trees. I don't believe it, man. They're actually, they should be called greens. Why? Because I was told that as a little kid and it just got, it pressed into me. It takes a miracle for someone to change their belief. That's why the Bible says we plant, other people water, but God gives the increase. Only God changes the heart. Yeah, we can do the three R's and we can look and research and listen and receive and do all that kind of stuff. But ultimately the human heart is changed by God. And that's what God does here with a bunch of people and they're noble for it. I love that. So he reasons. Paul does as good as he can, sharpening himself, getting better and better. Now he's giving the reasons why it's necessary for Jesus to die. He's doing that all. They do the three R's and there's this brilliant work started. The book of Proverbs, when you boil it down, says there's a righteous guy and there's a fool. The only difference between a righteous guy and a fool, you know what it is? Willingness to learn. Proverbs nine nine: The righteous man will take instruction. Proverbs fifteen five: The fool will not. You can beat him with many blows. Another text says, and he will not learn. Righteous people are willing to listen and to learn and to research, and that's why these guys are noble. They're noble. So Paul now gets kicked out of there, heads to Athens. Verse 16, I love that verse 15 though, those who conducted him brought him as far as Athens. They walk with him many, 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 many miles. I think someone said it was a hundred miles or something. And take him to his hotel. Hey, we love you so much. We're gonna walk you to this hotel. Make sure that you're safe. We know there's been a lot of animosity towards you. We're gonna walk you there. And then we gotta come all the way back. Man, these are really noble people. would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. Two Sundays ago, wasn't here on Sunday, but the previous Sunday, we actually looked at at Athens a bit. Athens is a university city, right? Their God is data and science and facts and figures and philosophy. So Paul ends up there. And while he's there, verse 16 says, He was provoked. What provokes you in a city? People swerving all over when they're on their cell phone. That provokes me. Paul walks around this place and sees all these idols and his heart is broken. Throughout history, there have been men and women who've had their hearts broken by a city and done incredible things. William Wilberforce, heart was broken when he saw people being treated as subhuman and he made it his mission to say not in the British empire and he dedicated himself. He was provoked and he changed the world. William and Catherine Booth, They're in London, watching orphans starve and prostitutes be mistreated, alcoholics dying in the ditches. Said this can't go on anymore, and they did something about it. The world has never been the same. They called themselves the Salvation Army, right? Chuck Colson saw what happens in the prison system and said he was provoked by that because he was there. He started. Prison Fellowship Ministries, which is now in 165 countries and millions and millions of people have heard the gospel because one guy was provoked by it. Bill McCartney and Dave Wardell were provoked by what they saw as apathy in men. And so they just made this idea, hey, let, let's just get men together. And like 5,000 people showed up and they called it promise keepers. And in 1997, they're standing the gap thing was the biggest gathering of men in U.S. history. Because a couple people were provoked. I keep praying, God stir my heart for my city. Stir my heart for this city. Because it doesn't take much, right? The Old Testament is full of, hey, one with God will chase 10,000. One with God will chase 10,000. When I start really believing the gospel, hey, I'm supposed to live something, an upside down kingdom. It looks radically different. It'd be like this. The upside down kingdom would be like going to a foreign country and driving on the wrong side of the road. Like the chaos that that would happen. That's the way our lives should be. It should be like driving on the wrong side of the road throughout Grant's Pass. What in the world are you doing? You're nuts. That's the way it should be. And when that happens, man, the world is changed. So Paul gets provoked, but notice verse 17. So he... Reasoned. He didn't just get provoked and be like, oh man. Mm. He got provoked and stepped out. If you get fired up without stepping out, you'll get burnt out. You'll start saying, God's not doing anything. Woe is me. grants Pass is so bad. Morals are crumbling. The drugs everywhere. You know, people like that? I hope that's not Edgewater. Because that's somebody. God maybe was provoking, did not have a verse 17. So, and now they're just burnt out. And it's sad to me. We're supposed to be, God, if you prick my heart, I want to partner with you in this. How can I be the answer to this? How can I, how can I do something to change what's provoking my heart? That's what Paul did. He was provoked. So in verse 17, he reasoned. And their response to him, verse 18, what does this babbler wish to say? The word babbler there literally means seed picker. Like a bird flying around and picking up seeds. We would just say today, what does this bird brain dude talking about? They're dissing him. So he has this, you know, provoked heart, he starts moving out on it and the response is you are bird brained. Paul would go into the synagogues and he'd get great respect because he was top student of Gamaliel. They'd give him a special seat in front. They'd give him a bagel with locks. They would say, do you want to share? But not in this environment. This is a new environment. I don't know who he is. As they call him a bird brain. So how does he respond? What does he do? He keeps doing it. Keeps sharing. Keeps reasoning. Keeps going on. Hey, I don't care what they... If they think I'm a seed picker, I'm a seed planter. I'm gonna keep planting seed wherever I go and I'm gonna trust, God, you will do something. It's almost like this. Do you know that people in a coma can still hear you? That gives you great, great hope when you're teaching sometimes. (laughs) I'm a seed planter. God will get it through them. It's like that. Paul just trusts the power of the gospel. I'm just gonna keep throwing it out there and it doesn't matter. They, I don't care what they think I am. I'm gonna keep doing it. And here's what happens. Because he's persistent, he gets invited to the Areopagus. Now, if you don't know Athens, I got to go there when I was working as an engineer and loved it. Very cool town. But the Areopagus is not what you think it is. Most people think the Areopagus is the Acropolis. The Acropolis has the Parthenon in it. It, it, I'll tell you, that was one of the most incredible structures I've ever been in in my life. It's unbelievable. It's just, it's astounding. He's not there. He's not in that place. He's over in the Areopagus. Also called Mars Hill. Who here knows what the God Mars was the God of? Very good, man. We got some Greek, whatever they'd be called, <laughs> mythology people. Yeah. What's that? Yes, totally. So it's a god of war. This is the council that protects Athens. This is the council that decides, uh, Athens was not a Rome colony. They were able to govern themselves. So this is the council that makes decisions about what goes on in the city of Athens, hyper-powerful. This is not philosophers. These are people that are like Supreme Court judges. That's what they are. And they're sitting now and they're gonna make a decision about Paul. And there's this accusation, it's verse 18. He's a preacher of foreign divinities. The word divinity there is literally where we get our word demon. He's preaching foreign demons. If you know your history, Socrates was brought before this same council. And one of the accusation against Socrates was preaching foreign divinities. He's introducing new gods. And what happened to Socrates? Death sentence, right? drink the hyslop tea and die. So this is not, hey, come up here and tell us about your philosophy. This is come up here and defend yourself, you might die. So a lot of people get Paul's message incorrectly because they think, oh, he's going up there to philosophize with them. No, he's not. He's up there and he's in court and he's defending what he's going to talk about. And, there's, and the other thing is this, they say he's teaching Jesus And the resurrection, both of those have the article before them, which means they're definite, which means literally they're saying he's teaching these two gods. Jesus is one God, the Greek word Anastasius. Resurrection is the other God. And the Anastasius is um, feminine, so it would be Jesus's cohort, his his companion God. So they were, it's it's trial. He's going up to put on trial. This is don't offend our gods. Don't you dare offend our gods. It'd be like going to Iran and being brought before the Mullahs and having them say, you are accused of blaspheming the prophet Muhammad. Defend yourself. That's kind of where Paul is. Okay, so that sets it up. Here's what happens. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus said, men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, as even some of your own prophets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance got overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. So quickly, there are two main groups, the Stoics and the Epicureans. The Epicureans, today you would call them agnostic. They said, if there are gods, they're so far away from us, we don't have to worry about them. So we are now gonna live for ourselves, for pleasure. And whatever brings us the most pleasure will be our God. So that's the Epicureans. So they're agnostics. The Stoics, on the other hand, they said this, God is everywhere. He's in everything. They were pantheists, right? The cosmic spark is in all of us, you know? We, we think we invented that kind of stuff in the 1960s when people were on drugs. Come on, give me a break. It's been around for a long, long time. So the, 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 these two things are right there in here. So Paul goes up there. The first thing he does is he says something really kind to them, but it's kind of a dig at the same time. Man of that, Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. It was said of Athens at this time that it was easier to find an idol than a God. They were everywhere. Okay. So it's almost a dig. It's like, one of my daughters said this a while, a couple weeks ago, after a Sunday message, I got home. She's like, dad, wow. You finally had a good sermon today. I was like, w- w- th- wait a second. What does that mean for all the other days? Right? It's kind of like that. It's like a hidden, like, what, wait, what? Hold on, she was kind of joking. I hope. <laughs> right? It's like that. He's kind of—he's got a subtle little dig at him, and then he just goes into. Here's what I love: he care less that his neck is on the line. He just goes into a sermon, which I love. Paul even more. This is not philosophy. Now, this is my neck's on the line. Everyone knows what happened to Socrates. They're accusing me of the same thing. I don't care. I'm gonna preach and this is what he does, to polytheists. He does a number of things. Number one, he says, God's creator. This is not pantheism. Stoics, you're wrong. Agnostics, you're wrong. God created everything. Most ancient pagan religions believe this about the gods, that the gods took something that existed, manipulated it somehow, and created what we have. Only Christianity says, Genesis 1.1, in the beginning... God created the heavens and the earth. There was nothing and there was something, which if you know science, matches up to what we know today. That there was nothing and there was a moment in time when there was something, Genesis 1, 1. So he does that, number one. Number two, he says, God's a giver. God gives us all these things. James says, every good and every perfect gift comes from God, right? Right? Pagans believe this, that the gods got hungry at some point and they created humans to work the fields to feed them. That's why you'll go to, um, I, I was in Japan for uh, a number of times for, for work and I'd always have to, I stayed at the same hotel and would, would go to the subway station and there was a Buddhist temple on the way in Wayno Park. And I'd walk by that Buddhist temple at like 6.30 in the morning. And every morning at 6.30, there'd be these plates of rice set out there. What were they doing? Feeding their God. That's what they're doing. It's an offering, feeding. It goes deep in the psyche of people, right? In India, I have this, this picture. It was the world in seven, seven shots. A, it was an awesome article. And one of the shots was this. It was explaining the world like different cultures in seven pictures. One of the pictures was this: it was this big escalator, a two two tiered escalator, and at the top of the escalator was a big giant workout gym. Guess what country that was in? Good old USA. An escalator up to go walk on the stairmaster. Why didn't you just walk up the stairs, right? I mean, it's just like only in America, right? The other picture that I really love was. Um, or just stunned me, I guess I shouldn't say I loved, it was stunning, was this massive bowl and it's probably would hold 30 gallons. And it was in India and they'd filled up this bowl full of milk. And all the way around the rim of that bowl were all these rats. Have you seen that picture? And they're drinking the milk. And the photographer in this instance, what he did was he got a picture of all these rats drinking this milk and this lady pouring in more milk. And behind her is this little child looking, just going, oh, I would love some of that milk. It's a stunning shot. Here they're pouring milk because their God is the, it's the rat God. While this little baby is saying, oh, I need some of that. It's a stunning picture, but that's in a lot of pagan religions that, that we are created to serve and get food to the gods. And Paul says, no way. The God that I'm preaching is a giver. He gives. When you eat a really good piece of dark chocolate, you say, God's a giver. This August, when you take that big vine ripened tomato with a little bit of salt on it, you say, God's a giver. When you eat really good salsa in September, he reminded God is a giver. So Paul's correcting them. No, he's creator. And he's not like the gods you guys talk about. This God's a giver. Number three, he's an orderer, verse 26. And this one is so hard for me to pass up. I almost did a Sunday sermon on it because what Paul is saying here is there's these determined periods, seasons, and boundaries of people. So if you read Deuteronomy chapter 32, which I recommend, one of the most important chapters in the Bible, it gives this kind of thing that happens. It's it's a recounting of history with a lens back on here's what that meant. And it goes back to the Tower of Babel and then Genesis 12, which follows that, the selection of Abraham. And in verse eight, it says this real simple, keep it real quick. It says that God gave the peoples over to the sons of God, the Ah Elohim. Now, who are the sons of God? It's not the sons of Adam. It's the sons of God. Well, I'm a creational monotheist, which means this. God created everything. And within creation, he created a class of beings that we can call, we'd call them angels or Demons. And the angels are aligned with God and demons are the dark powers that are aligned with Satan. And they have a different thing. It would be Ephesians chapter six, verse 12, that there are principalities and powers and spiritual wickedness in high places. And so God gives over to these, a lot of times, a lot of periods. It it was a response to Babel. The people saying, and Babel is a massive thing. It was the people saying to God, we don't want you over us. We're gonna do it our way. So God says, okay, fine. So God says, okay, I gave them over and I took Jacob as my inheritance. You guys have your inheritance? I have my inheritance. And that's right after Babylon comes, the covenant with Abraham that you, through your all families will be blessed. So I think that's what he's referencing here, right here. Listen, this has been going on a long time, this division, but now it's over because God's now calling all of us together. And God has ordered this thing in such a way that it was gonna happen the way he wanted it to. And when you look at the world, uh, anyone see Interstellar, the movie? Okay, there's that planet they go to, it has the 500 foot tidal wave every whatever, 45 minutes. There's no reason why that should not happen on earth. Science has no reason why earth is so conducive to life. Like the great scientific minds have said this, Uh, Stephen Hawking's one of them. He said this, it's almost as if Earth knew we were coming. I say Genesis 1 (laughs) through 26 is earth knew we were coming and it was created to be conducive, right? And the other thing is like society. Why hasn't society decomposed more than it has? There's all these apocalyptic movies, Mad Max, Book of Eli. Why isn't earth like that? Well, because God has seasons and order. He is the orderer of everything. So Paul, hey, he's the giver. He's the creator. He's the orderer and he's close right? If you seek him, you're going to find him, Jeremiah 29, 13. If you draw near unto the Lord, James 4:8, he will draw near unto you. So respond, respond to the resurrection. But the moment he says the resurrection, what happens? They cut him off. Verse 32. Now, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. Here's what I think happened to Paul. His last point got truncated. I think Paul was gonna go back to verse three and be like, Let me reason with you now why it was necessary for Jesus to die. That judgment is coming for you, but listen, you don't have to be judged because there was someone who was judged in your place. But he never got to his last point. And he's cut off. And instead, Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed among whom also was Dionysius, the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris and others with him. Athens is the only major city Paul stops in where no church is established. So he goes there, it doesn't happen. The council just says he's a fool. We don't even worry about him. He is clueless, just let him go, right? He gets out of it, he pleads, it's insanity, you know, well, he's insane, He can't even stand travel and forget him. So he goes off. So a couple notes and we're done. Number one. Paul does not win everything. And he's okay with it. So what does he do? He goes down the road to this city called Corinth. And in Corinth, we know more about that church than any other church in the ancient world. So Paul just says, Okay, next up. Okay. Next up. Okay. Next up, that's the life of the believer. Sometimes you'll fail, no problem. Next up. Number two, Paul was continually sharpening himself. I think Silas and Timothy and others, they were always just hammering out. How do we do better? We gotta talk about why it was necessary for Jesus to die. Okay, well, let's look at the scripture. Let's, let's pound on it. It's like almost community group. Paul always had these guys around him. It was like his community group that he would just hammer things and talk about things and try to get sharper and sharper and sharper. How do we take culture, the culture of the Athenians? How do we take the culture of the Corinth? How do we take the culture of the Bereans and use that to get to Christ? To me, that's the job of every Christian. How do we take the culture that's around me in my family, at my workplace, in Grants Pass? How do we take that culture? And how do I drive to Christ? Which is what Paul always did. Then thirdly and lastly, what fires you up? What's your verse 16? I think every one of us should have a verse 16. This provokes me. And then we should say, so God, what's my verse 17? What's my so? It's ready, aim, fire. Get ready, we're studying scripture, are being Berean, okay, good. Aim, that provokes me. Okay, boom, let's fire, let's go. What provokes you? If you're not provoked by anything, pray to be poked so you're provoked. So, Jesus, we thank you for Paul. An incredible example. A man who dedicated his life to being an ambassador for you, sharing the good news sharpening himself, learning, loving, caring, willing to put his neck on the line in front of a council that could have said, off with his head. But he knew you were great enough and powerful enough that it didn't matter. I pray for us as a congregation, Lord, planted in places all over Josephine County. May we be a group of people that allow your spirit to provoke us And then may we partner with you and may we turn Grant's pass upside down. May we be those that actually believe the gospel, the upside down kingdom. The first is last. That we overcome evil with good. That we can love our enemies. That we can pray for those that despitefully use us. That we can turn the other cheek. And we do these things through the power of your spirit who is great enough. We're not, but your spirit is. So may we be full of you and may it ooze out all over the place this week in Grants Pass. So may we be sent out tonight as your ambassadors, equipped as proclaimers of a new king and a new kingdom. And I ask this in your name. Amen.